Hello and welcome back to the State of Play podcast, episode 72. And a happy new year to all our listeners across the globe, whether you're listening in North America, the UK, Europe. Oh, it's weird to say that, that those are two different things now, isn't it? So strange. <laughs> <laughs> Leaving those things in 2020, Brexit, uh, hopefully COVID soon at some point. Um, I'm joined, as always, by Matt Santangelo. How are you doing, mate? Doing pretty well. Happy New Year, everyone. Uh, first episode of the New Year, of course. Got some football to talk about, but of course, Pat, we're not alone. We are not alone. We are joined by Mo Ali. How are you doing, mate? Good, thanks. Pleasure to be here. Fourth appearance? Fourth I think third. so. I've lost count. Oh, yeah. It's been, it's been, lost that, count. It's been, it's been um, that regular almost. The SLP veteran, man. You're just putting in that yeah. work. A friend of the show. I'm looking forward to be on the, uh, like, sort of the wall of fame that you guys are <laughs> About 100, Does... 150 episodes in. At some point, like, if Mo's been on enough, do we have to apportion a part of our award that we won in 2020 for him? Yeah. I would say so, yeah. <laughs> He's like, yeah, let's do it. Um, Mo, I mean, crazy times. Uh, last time you appeared, we weren't in as crazy times. Obviously, UK going back into, like, this um, horrible uh, kind of bars uh have come down and we're going to go into another big lockdown it seems this evening apparently football is going to stay on though which is good but um do you want to start in france because i think that's probably for me the most interesting storyline that's kind of come about and cropped up and it's kind of i know it's really weird to say matt but it's kind of gone under the radar in Maurizio pochettino getting back into management and getting into a position that has become the poison chalice so he follows ancelotti emery and thomas tuchel in becoming the psg coach which seems to be at the moment the hardest job in football matt yeah this is um it's, I think it's a, a fantastic hire in the sense that, you know, I think there's something that this club needs because there's obviously ability there. Their their objectives are very high. They're trying to reach for new heights as a club. I mean, they're, of course, off the back of a Champions League final appearance against Bayern Munich. Some things didn't go their way, but that that can, that match could have effectively been theirs, if, if you want to ask me my honest opinion mm. on it. So for them to see, you know, essentially half a season later, them going in a different direction from Tuchel to, of course, Pochettino, it's going to be interesting. You know, mid-season hires like this uh, don't, in my opinion, at least from what I've seen, don't normally happen. They Coaches typically like to wait until the offseason. They have a clean slate. They have everything available to them to assess their squad before stepping in midstream. But we have seen it work out in the past with certain clubs and certain managers. I know Mourinho came in at Tottenham, and then Jurgen Klopp came in mid, uh, middle of the season for Liverpool. Of course, things were a little bit different then, but um, I- I'm curious to get, to get Mo's initial reaction to this as far as what we can expect to see from Pochettino early on. Secondly, what maybe he's going to um, try to instill from the jump. Is he going to see a little bit more what we saw at Tottenham or is he going to maybe pull some different tricks that we maybe saw at Southampton or even Espanyol? Well, yeah, first of all, I think it's it's a really interesting time um, as to why they've brought in Pochettino now. I think personally for me, it sounds like that they've maybe got advanced information um, that Pochettino was going to be pretty soon off the market and they might have gotten tired of Tuchel um, after two and a half years in, in Paris so they decided to act now. It, it's very reminiscent of uh, Carl Ancelotti coming in um, ahead of uh, Antoine Kumbare, I think it was now nine years ago where he was sacked after a win that left him at the top of the table. Ancelotti came in to sort of attract you know, more stars to take PSG to the next level and end up losing the league title that same year to, to Montpellier. Um, so it's it's hard because Paris Saint-Germain have, have have blown hot and cold. That is the truth. But, you know, it's they, they do have extenuating circumstances because of a lot of COVID um, and injury um, restrictions um, uh, to, to, you know, to players that have, have, have been left out of the squad. You're having to go through necessary isolation, etc. So, and then they've they've also sort of struggled to match the top sides in the league. And they've, for the first time, I think for sure in the Qatar era, they're actually winless against the top five. Um, only only the you know one win against Rennes, um, and they lost to Lyon. They lost to Marseille. They lost to Monaco. They they drew with Lille very recently as well. That's not regular form. So it's the truth that this is actually the second worst start in the league era but that 
um, under the Qataris. But that obviously comes with many caveats. The fact that many players are out, many players have been injured, they've been rotating every single game. There's 27 players that they've used this year. So, you know, what 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 will Pochettino bring in, particularly in the short term, like Tuchel hasn't? That's sort of the question that you've got to ask. Um, and it's difficult because he needs to be um, really coming in off the bat. He's a, a manager that really likes to get close to his players, that likes to lay down the law, but mm. but also at a human level that really brings the best out of them, whereas Tuchel is more methodical, can be a bit abrasive, can be standoffish and cold. Um, you know, Pochettino has, has that vibe. You saw it at Southampton and, and at Tottenham where he effectively ripped up any sort of norms and really imprinted the style very, very quickly. You saw in those teams rapid riders across the you know league table and, and new heights. So is he going to do that in six months? Why why not wait till the end of the year? Why not see what, what's going to happen? Um, it might be that, you know, this season is a very big one for Paris Saint-Germain because they did reach new heights last year, obviously, with the Champions League final. Um, but you know, and Neymar and Mbappe are reaching sort of squeaky bum time in contract contractual mm. talks. So they, you know, Al Khalifa and the and the Qatari leadership might have sort of needed to act to sort of show their star players that they are a red to make changes and and instill um, a coach that can bring the best out of them. Um, because I think towards the end of Tuchel's reign, there, there was just sort of some you know, comments and sort of some standoffish behaviour between him and Leonardo, the sporting director, is also very close to the players um, with the results, with the media, over certain certain results. So Pochettino has basically has a lot of um, things in his intro um, over the next couple of months. And we really, you know, really starting with, with a league on, a, a full league on schedule, both on Wednesday and on Saturday. And... Um, we've got the Super Cup next week against Marseille next Wednesday. Um, so already a first trophy on the line. Um, and with Lille and Leon both looking very sharp and and, and very good, there, there's no sort of room for error already uh, for him. Um, and given that he's already had a year out, it's going to be really interesting to see his first month or so. I think a couple of things here, right? Um, first and foremost, I think, well, actually three things that I want to work out. First, like, at Spurs and at Southampton, Pochettino basically turned water into wine. He took players that basically had no right in being as good as they could be um, and made them play out of their actual skins, right? Um, we haven't seen the same Deli Alley since, for example. Um, Danny Rose fell off a cliff. Um, you could argue... Uh, Carl Walker had his most prolific football at uh, Spurs, even though I guess there's less pressure for him at City to be an offensive um, weapon. Like he made players play as well as they physically could. Um, and I, I kind of made the analogy at the time when Spurs were, were considering sacking him. I was like, this is a guy who spent his whole career turning water into wine. And at some point he's going to want to go to a place where the wine's made for him. And I think he's now at that place. And it's now, can you create that kind of full set course meal to complement the wine that you've got um, to go and win trophies and go and win the trophy in the Champions League? Because I think it's not going to cut it if we look at this in 24 months to 36 months time if Pochettino has just won domestic trophies, unless PSG have won, have made the semis and the finals every single year. Um, That's the way I look at it. So... I think there's that point on the kind of water to wine. This is the first time where he's had the, the wine made for him. I think stylistically, he's always been very quite fullback oriented. And if I look at the players that PSG have in those positions, their strength is more through the spine. So in terms of Marquinhos, Verratti, and then uh, Mbappe, Neymar, those are the, the four standout players. You've got Di Maria as well. It's going to be interesting him being Argentinian and whether or not Icardi is going to come back into the frame and how all those players are going to be utilised. But I wouldn't be surprised to see maybe additions over the next 12 months that really cater to that type of football that they want, to, that, that Pochettino wants to play. And I think the third point to make is like, if this doesn't work out for PSG, We've then gone through three or four managers, all different styles. They've gone for, you know, uh, the old veteran who's been there and done it in, in, in Ancelotti. They've gone for the guy who's won trophies and done well at one level with Seville and Unai Emery. And then they've gone for like a younger coach who's kind of up and coming in Thomas Tuchel. And now they've gone for Pochettino, who's 
I guess, kind of unproven at the top level, but a lot of people in football rate really, really highly. If this doesn't work out for Pochettino, is it then a point that you kind of look at the PSG project and think this might have to be ripped up from the start and maybe it's the player's fault, maybe it's the the hierarchy's fault? Well, um, it's that's that's a very personal question, actually, because he 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 has to succeed in in this in this sort of arena. And I think PSG absolutely have to give him the tools to do so. Like you've mentioned, there needs to be a squad overall um, because the likes of Mitchell Backer, who who I think has advertised very very well mm. um, for for PSG, given the number of issues that they've been going through, uh, is is not a, 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 essentially a top top player. Uh, Levin Kazawa, who three years ago already looked like he was out of the, out of the, uh, the frame at PSG, is not a top top player. Juan Bernat is still a couple of months away from from uh, his recovery, and then at right back, you know what's been going on? They've been they've they've not really had a top right back. Thomas Munier is already gone. Um, you you have Colin Dagba and Tilo Kara um, playing there uh, from time to time as well. They they need better caliber of players they need um stronger midfielders and they need a better balance across across the team and that's going to cost money um and we do think of psg as obviously as a team with limitless um income but that also might be affected this year because you know i think we're not going to see the, another 400 million uh, transfer window i think that was just a, a special occasion um and obviously given the impact of covid and PSG's revenue streams, a lot of it comes from tourism, airlines, etc. That's revenue streams all impacted by COVID. But then you've also got the um, the Ligue 1 um, TV collapse, uh, the financial mm. uh, collapse of the TV deal very recently. That's going to be impacting all teams. Um, and for financial fair play reasons, they can't obviously go beyond a certain level of spending. So it's going to be a tricky situation. Fortunately for them, they've got a lot of assets available, especially Deadwood in the team. That they can uh, sell and generate some some good money. You've got the likes of you know Julian Draxler who has been you know not um, considered as a prime PSG player anymore, and that's been the case for about two years now. Um, you know that's you know someone I think of Pablo Sarabia who's again been really remarked as a as a substitute player, player that comes off the bench and plays a cup games etc. Uh, because of the fact that. The likes of you know Mbappe and Neymar will always be, and Di Maria will always be first names on Tishi. You've got uh, Moise Keane who's been performing very well off the bench, um, and as a, again secondary striker, be, um, so much so that Mario Cardi is now almost completely out of the picture. Just a couple of months after they bought him permanently for for fifty sixty mil. Um, the the difference is is that Pochettino can do uh, the best he can, but. What's you know led Emery and uh, Tuchel out of the door is that you've got to really um, connect with the players on a human level, and it can be quite difficult when there's sort of a clique of world-class players, a clique of players from a certain uh, nationality. We had the Brazilians, for example, at, at Paris Saint-Germain, who wielded superb power when, especially when Dani Alves was there. Um, that can be a problem, and the manager is not so much a person that's responsible for the first team; he's almost a diplomat as. There was a fantastic article recently in the Athletic that showed um, quite sort of how problematic that Tuchel sort of dealt with the, the different stakeholders. You've got Leonardo on one side, you've got Al Khalifa, who's the ultimate power broker. You've got the Emir of Qatar, who likes to get involved in decisions um, and was reportedly the, the the choice who who were, you know gave the choice of Pochettino um, this time round. There's just a lot of competing interests and a lot of different visions and styles. So it can be quite difficult. Whereas for Tottenham, for large periods until they obviously got successful down the line, Daniel Levy just you know let Pochettino do his work um, and really only sort of discuss you know transfers etc. But you had Pochettino given the reins day to day and just managing the the field. That can be quite difficult, Paris Saint Germain, because of a lot of competing interests and visions and that's something that Angelotti struggled with, Laurent Blanc struggled with, as did Emery and Tuchel. So that's going to be really interesting, especially as, like I said, we're coming up to, um, you know, contract renewal talks for two of their most remarkable players. Hmm. It's such a fascinating thing to look at from the outside, isn't it? If you're not a 
big French football fan, if you're not a PSG fan, if you're a neutral, watching how that unfolds, the drama of Neymar, Mbappe over the next two years. I mean, that's the final question from me on this subject. Those two, how do you see them over the next uh, a season or two? Do you see their futures at PSG? I remember, um, Matt, the last time we had Jonathan uh, Johnson on the show, um, he meant he correctly predicted them both staying. But I guess now that they're going to be in the dwindlings of their contracts, Mo, what is going to happen with those two superstars? It's hard. I think it's likely for me to see Mbappe to stay because obviously he's got that local connection with the club. He is from the suburbs of Paris. You know, he, he is a, a, a very staunch defender of Ligue 1, shall we say, and, and, and um, absolutely enjoys his um, sort of domestic spotlight, shall we say. Um, Neymar is, 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 is perhaps a little bit different. He has been very much maligned, not just in the French media, but, you know, across Europe for certain things. But this season, particularly in the Champions League, he showed, you know, just his fantastic ability. There's no doubt about that, that he's, he's such a supreme player. Um, and, you know, Ligue 1 and Ligue 1 titles are not going to cut it for him, um, particularly the, the emergence of Mbappe, which was unexpected when he moved to, to Paris Saint-Germain from Barcelona three years ago. Um, doesn't mean that he's got the spotlight anymore. Um, and he's been angling for a move, obviously, for a while, especially to Barcelona, um, to, to, to reconnect with Messi. There's, there's no chance, I think, of seeing Messi in, in the French capital anytime soon. Um, so it will just it will be interesting because no club other than Manchester City, I think, can afford either of uh, these two, particularly in these challenging financial circumstances. Um, so uh, you could either see Paris spending their way to, to securing both of them um, again with no guarantee of continental success which still hasn't arrived three seasons in um, it, it's tricky I think I think Neymar would probably be likely to move but I don't see it happening anytime soon I think that they will keep them both and if it gets to within a year of their contracts expiring so be it mm. I think we'll move on because we talked about PSG quite a lot there. Um, unless, Matt, you've got anything to add. I mean, the other headline is uh, Saliba from Arsenal going to Nice on loan. No permanent option there, Mo. But one of the most coveted talents when Arsenal bought him uh, defensively, uh, speaking. Yeah. And now going back on, it hasn't quite worked out in this maiden season. Um, what's your reading of the situation? Um, I'd like to ask you the same question, obviously, being, a, being an Arsenal fan, uh, because I've just found it mind-boggling um, how he's been treated. I think, you know, you don't spend 30 million euros on a on a promising young defender if you're not going to use him whatsoever. I don't know exactly what's gone on there. Um, and then you've, you've got this sort of faff where he um, wanted to play in the, the Coupe de France final, which he performed very well in Saint-Étienne as a whole performed very well in what was otherwise a very bleak season um, to get to to get to that final and then doesn't get to play um, because of some bonuses or other regulatory issues. Um, it's it just surprises me because if you brought me on to this um, podcast a year ago and we were talking about Saliba, um, I would have said that he looks sharper and more more mature in defence than Wesley Fofana. And we all know how fantastic mm. he's done um, for Leicester. He's been one of the revelations of the season in the Premier League. And for me at Saint-Étienne, uh, Saliba always looked, you know, at first the better defender. And Arsenal have not used him whatsoever. Not um, even once. Not, not even, even once. once. <laughs> it, it's, it's, it's surprising for me. I mean, he had his injury issues last year, um, but he's he, he recovered through them. Um, a, a difficult season, sort of a difficult end of the season um, uh, for him, but also for, for the rest of the team. But like I said, he, he had the potential. He looked uh, very resolute. He looked fantastic um, over the last sort of majority of two years at Saint-Étienne. I just can't believe that he moved to North London and essentially to stay, not even on the bench, to stay home. Yeah. Um, it's 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 frankly surprising for me. So the fact that he's gone to Nice is, is a good thing. It's a good thing for 
see another player who is very well regarded in France going back. Nice do need the defensive cover. Uh, Dante is is injured long term, and and they've been uh, sort of struggling without him. So they've got a very young team, and I think it'll be good to hit, good for him to slot in into that defence, show a bit of leadership, show his his qualities as well, um, and and return to a somewhat high level. Nice have also gone through a couple of changes, and it's not insurmountable that so Nice are now backed uh, by rich owners in Ineos. Mm that they could put a bid on for him if it all goes well uh, eventually. But it doesn't seem to me that Arsenal are looking to use this asset. In fact, his, his value has dwindled quite a bit because of what's been going on, which I think you can answer better than me as to the reasons why. But um, it's, it's a good sign for both him. It's a good sign for Liga. It's a good sign for the, 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 the national sort of youth teams of France where he can also now be back into the spotlight and play regularly and return to the to the under 21 teams for example um but yeah just mind-boggling <laughs> mind-boggling really i mean i think there's a few things that have happened off the pitch um i think his mother passed uh if i'm not mistaken in the kind of beginnings of the season um I think there's also been some sort of like unrest in the Arsenal dressing room. And I think he's been on the wrong side of that. Um, we saw Matteo Guendouzi, for example, get shipped out for attitude reasons, not talent reasons. That happens with players all the time, right? Like sometimes it's not just about how good you are on the pitch. It's also how you conduct yourselves off the pitch. And when you have this kind of, uh, you know, the type of manager that, for example, Bochettino is that we just discussed in Mikel Arteta, where he's very, you know, very sturdy in his kind of non-negotiables that he he quotes and talks about all the time, potentially has a lot to learn as a man manager, sometimes that these players can get shipped out. And I, and I do just wonder if there is something more to this other than, because like if, like we, we can't sit here right now, uh, honestly, as, as people who you'd think know football, um, say that, William Salibia doesn't deserve a chance over Socrates and Mustafi and, um, you know, uh, Rob Holding when he wasn't performing well or uh, David Luiz when he was being a clown, as he usually does. But, like, it is it is mind-boggling what's happened with this transfer. And, and more so because, uh, Matt, I guess Arsenal have done pretty well in the transfer window recently in terms of kind of some of the players that they've brought in. I mean... Um, Pepe aside, if you look at kind of Tierney, Leno, uh, I know it didn't really work out for Luca Torreira, but Gabriel, um, Martinelli, uh, there's been some good players that have come in over the last 24 to 36 months. And Saliba was really dubbed as one of those that was going to be a mainstay yeah. for Arsenal for 10 years. And I remember how, yeah, I remember how excited you were about him too. I, I think a lot of Arsenal fans were because it's you kind of saw the dynamic or the landscape shift begin to shift at Arsenal with, you know, Pepe, as you mentioned, a lot of these younger players, you know, not tying up too many wages or too much wages in um, players that are, you know, beyond 30 and, you know, maybe have their best years behind them. But then you see guys like, you know, Pepe, you know, struggling to replicate what he did in France. You have, you know, as we've been talking about here, Saliba really just not get minutes. It's, it's astonishing to me to see a player like Saliba who uh, with Bofana, you know, we're so highly sought after and you see one, it's just kind of thrusted right into the, right into the starting 11 pretty much at Leicester city. And I don't know if it's strictly down to just him being, you know, what, what Arteta's seeing on a day to day, just not being up for it or, or the right fit, but it's hard to argue against the guy not getting at least a chance when Arsenal have been in this position they are in right now. I know they've been playing pretty well lately, but um, yeah, it, it's really weird. And then you see them go and just tie up money and the guys like Lillian and, you know, it, it's a weird situation. I think I was beginning to look at Arsenal's situation. Um, and when we talked about this too, I think when they won their cup at the end of last season, I was like, all right, Arsenal, I think they're going to get Saliba. They got a lot of these players coming in. They seem younger. They seem like they're kind of going in a different direction as far as their transfer policy is concerned. And now you see them, you know, almost toying with some of these players here. And you wonder if Saliba is going to even feel like he wants to come back. You know, the way I'm observing it, and then you guys can, you know, speak on it probably better than I can. When I look at Saliba's situation, if, if they're going with Arteta, what's going to change in six months? What's going to change in Arteta's mindset that says, okay, we want Saliba back. Now I want to give him a shot. I just find that this can be one of those situations that, comes back to bite Arsenal 
um, with the way they handled it. And this guy winds up going somewhere else and he winds up becoming a stud player. Yeah. So, and I think that's why Arsenal are loaning him and not selling him, right? And there's no option to buy. So you'd think mm-hmm. the worst case scenario, Arteta's like, ends, yeah. no, I don't want this guy and Arsenal sell him somewhere and recoup most of the fee if he does well. Mm-hmm. And the best case scenario is he comes back and becomes a, a starter for Arsenal. But um, yeah, let's let's not focus too much on this one because we've got loads more stories to, to cover or, or headlines to co- us cover. Um, Frank Lampard. Uh I mean, Matt, I luckily, quote unquote, luckily missed out uh, on hosting the show during a very difficult period for Arsenal. And uh, during that period, it felt like Chelsea were going to be title contenders and Arsenal might get relegated. You, you look at it, you know, two weeks on or whatever it is, and Chelsea are three points ahead of Arsenal and they don't look in good nick. They were utterly dismantled by Man City in what was Man City's best performance of the season by some distance. But, you know, without uh, quite a few players, no Carl Walker, no Laporte, um, no Sergio Aguero, didn't even get any minutes, uh, no Gabriel Jesus, no Edison, and they took uh, Chelsea to the sword. And there were some questionable selections. I mean, Hakim Ziyech playing his first game back from injury against City, questionable. Uh, neither Tammy Abraham or Giroud, who I, I was looking at their XG statistics, I think Giroud is on... Uh, I think 0.71 XG per 90 this season and Tammy is 0.7 XG per 90 this season. So they, they've got two strikers who are clearly very, very capable based off this this season's data and, and the way they've been playing. Um, and then Christian Pulisic, again, um, he's not been amazing this season, but he has been loaded with quite a lot of minutes during this Christmas period. And I was surprised to see him start again. And then Timo Werner up top for the first time in a few weeks. I mean... Is it the case of in a few weeks, we're going to look back and we're going to see Lampard no longer in Chelsea colours and we are going to just say it's a, it's a result-based business, Matt? I think when you look, the fact that he was able to get top four last year um, with a younger team, you know, having basically a very slim side as far as um, the depth is concerned in comparison to some of the other clubs that they're competing with, you know, the Liverpools, the cities of the world. So I think... I think at the very least, he was deserving of this opportunity to come into this season and have some backing on the market, which backing would be an understatement, right? He got backed quite a bit. And in this climate with COVID, uh, backed more than pretty much any top club would um, in, in Europe's top five. So the expectations weren't going to be, well, let's just get us top four. I think with the with the market they had, you know, Timo Werner, they had Ziyech, um, you know, Kai Havertz for a substantial fee all these players, Mendy, you know, you've seen this though that, okay, like you're going for it. Lampard's your guy because you don't just spend that much money on a, on, on a club with this guy involved. If you don't truly believe he's the guy to steer the ship. And I think the more you see it with this, with this Chelsea team this year, you kind of get a more of a clearer idea that as you mentioned, Pet, I know you were, you were pretty much spot on with Chelsea in your, your preseason assessment of them. You're like, yeah, they spent a lot, but, they are still still missing like three to four players, you feel. But on the flip side, you wonder, well, we're going to spend more now. We gave this guy almost $250 million on a market, on a squad here, plus on top of what they already had. So you wonder is if it's just a matter of getting the right manager to get the most out of this, because this squad is clearly underperforming. There's clearly a lot of talent here, but a lot of players have taken step backs. They haven't exploded the way you would have anticipated your know, team of Werner. I know he'd become like kind of the talk of football Twitter here. <laughs> and then the same thing for some of these other guys where people are looking at Conte and questioning whether or not he's past his prime. Jorginho's coming under fire too. I see on time from time. So I don't know. This feels like one of those things where I'm not saying the correction and the, the solution strictly is manager right now, because it's really difficult to just pinpoint on that when players are still not really meeting that expectation but my goodness you would expect you know if you had a a manager like I'm not saying sorry because I know you don't like him but um, (laughs) someone like a Max Allegri who I know has been somewhat linked to Chelsea I think that would be a sound sound move I think a a manager who maybe won't play the sexiest brand of football something that you know a lot of Juventus fans criticized him for but at the same time is a results-based manager who has a proven track record of being able to uh, manage big personalities big players um, and 
the Premier League it seems to be a destination that he desires. So it's hard to say. I think the leash is going to be very short. We know Marina has a very short leash here. Um, and, you know, when you see Pochettino go to PSG midseason, I think, you know, from the mind of Chelsea and, and those making the decisions, you have to look and say, well, look, we don't want to let this thing get too far out where we're not even in contention for top four because then that's a really big problem because now you have all this money tied to these players and you got to get a new coach and you're just not qualifying for top four. It's just simply not acceptable with how much they've invested. So this is going to be one to obviously monitor um, in the coming weeks, the, you know, the really beginning of the season. I'm curious to see if Lampard, with all the pressure mounting on his shoulders and some of these other players um, really being heavily criticized in English media, do they respond? What's the response here? Because I think at the end of the day, yes, you know, they've been struggling but they are still relatively close to being back in that top four conversation and a good couple of weeks, a good month or two can get them back there. And people are going to say, okay, Lampard's got the trust again. We've seen it with Ollie. I mean, there was talk about him being axed. He's not the right guy early in the season. Now he's got them, I think, joint top of the table, you know, with Liverpool. So things can change in a couple months, but I would be stunned if Lampard is the coach beyond this year. I think when you spend this much money to have this sort of up and down season, I think if you're Chelsea, you want to see more consistency. You want to see um, more trusting in certain of these players and being able to, to ease them along and help them grow to be the world-class talents that they are. Mo, I'll let you take it away, man. Chelsea, Lampard? <laughs> yeah, I'm not exactly quite... I mean, Matt um, sort of summarised it pretty well there. Um, I'm not convinced at all by Lampard. I think they've looked a bit um, tactically illiterate in theory over the last couple of games. I mean, four defeats and six. Um, as you said, it's a results business. And after spending that much, um, you really got to back it up with, with something substantial. Um, and the fact that, you know, teams like Villa and Everton have also had a pretty good start to the season, but you really are starting to see... Um, obviously Liverpool aside, but City, United clicking to gear, um, you know, Tottenham shaking off some of the recent cobwebs as well. We're entering not so much the business time of the season, but really um, where trajectories are set in stone. Mm-hmm. And Chelsea do not, like, look, do not look like they're in an upward trajectory. Um, Champions League is obviously coming up not too far away. Um, it's And there's just no sort of inkling that the likes of uh, team of Werner, Kai Havertz in particular, your big summer signings are you know, ready to turn the corner. Um, and I just don't see Frank Lampard being um, that manager to take him to the next level. That's not to say that he isn't a decent manager. You can just look to um, his record last year um, with that team and obviously with the, the issues that they had um, with, with the transfer bans. Um, you know, getting fourth despite 12 losses, which I thought was a bit too much. And I didn't think well, the entire quality of sort of, of the top four race was pretty poor. Um, but that's still a, still a good achievement. Um, he's just not the manager to take them forward. So I think it's best come losses. And as we spoke about at the beginning of the podcast, I think two goals for, fact, for far less <laughs> over in Paris to Chelsea, I think need to be as, as cutting and see um, you know, what, what, what they can achieve. I think what you said there about this not being the business end of the season, but being the, especially in England where you play like three, three games in the last seven days, whatever it is for most clubs, you can really start make, making sizable gaps. For example, um, we could see a situation where City uh, get into third, but by a few points if they win their games in hand. Um, we can see a situation where Arsenal are level on points with Chelsea by the next game week. So you get yourself in a situation where things can move so, so quickly. But I think it looks grim for Lampard. Uh, their fixtures aren't amazing. And if I'm looking at it, like with the with the kind of, backing that he received in the summer with the history of Roman Abramovich with the rumours that they're looking at Shevchenko as an interim manager um I don't know let's see where that goes um I mean I mean just on. just to pretend this, it was this it was a fact this period last year I mean Chelsea I felt you know hung on to, to, to fourth place so Man United obviously on the flip side had a bit of a resurgence but they had a shocking December and even poorer uh January um at, you know at the turn of 2020 so, you know, losing to Newcastle, that draw against Arsenal, losing, um, losing to, to, to United as well. It's like I said, it's this period that's actually very, very key because of the fixtures. You need a bit of momentum. And, the, you know, I, I, like I said, I think 
the other teams in the top four are clicking to get even Arsenal, as you can see, are clicking into gear. What when they were labelled just relegation rivals uh, to to West Brom just a couple of weeks days ago, even. Um, so I just don't see it happening. I think for that, for 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 Chelsea to sort of turn the corner, you need your players to start firing. I just don't see it yet for for Timo Werner um, and Co. Mm. Well, let's move on quickly. We've got two transfer stories that I wanted to touch on. Um, Kevin De Bruyne has apparently rejected a contract from Manchester City and also rumours that David Alaba uh, is going to Real Madrid when his uh, his contract is up at the end of the summer. So um, really interesting news. Loads of big players are at the end of their contracts um, this coming summer or have like a couple of years left or a year left. KDB is obviously the best, well, in my opinion, the best player in the Premier League, uh, best midfielder in the world, um, City's best player. Like, surely he can't be going anytime soon. Can he, Matt? I don't think he he leaves. I mean, I don't think he leaves for free at the very least. But um, yeah, Debra, I, I agree with everything you're saying here, Pedon. But Debron, he's you can't possibly, if you're City, let this guy leave at all and at any cost. I think you have to find a way to make this this contract renewal happen. Um, he's a player that's definitely deserving of the money he will be paid, which will be quite a bit. Uh, he's at the heart of that project. You know, you commit to Pep Guardiola as your manager. I think you have to be able to retain Kevin Debrana keep him at the heart of this project, keep him the focal point of this team, um, the leadership, the fact that he's in his prime, the fact that he's being able to just offer so much as far as ability, leadership, quality on the field, that it seems as though it's more of a, you know, like almost in many ways, at least in my opinion, I always tie it back to Milan uh, with Donnarumma situation where um, the, the talent's undeniable. The player deserves to be paid quite a bit. He's one of the best in the world. And, you know, it seems like it's getting down to the, the nitty gritty here and down to the wire that maybe he does leave. But I think in the end, uh, DeBrano will sign a new contract with City. I just I just don't envision him leaving anytime soon. Um, you know, and then the same thing with Alaba. I know Alaba's um, in a different situation. Um, from what I'm seeing, he's going to Real Madrid, um, which would be a massive coup for, for Real Madrid. Um, but, you know, it would be a little sour, of course, if they get Alaba but they can't find a way to keep their long-serving captain, of course, in Sergio Ramos, who's maybe on the way out. So a lot of shuffling with guys running down their contracts. Um, as I mentioned, Donnarumma and Hakan Chalhanoglu, two really key players for them um, for, for first place Milan. So um, I, I wonder if it's, you know, Mo, maybe you can touch on this too and Pat as well. What's, what's the, the, the situation that we're seeing here in recent years or maybe recent windows with a lot of these big profile players um, just willing to just not commit to anything. Like if they want to sign a contract, it would be six months before or a year before versus really committing to something versus just really exploring and seeing what's out there. Do we see this landscape or the current landscape we see now being something that a lot of other high profile players um, consider in the future, you know, real quick, there was one tweet that went out from someone talking about, you know, Real Madrid looking to get Kylian Mbappe. And I know we talked about this off the top, but I want to circle back around to that. Like, do you see a guy like Kylian Mbappe ever being willing to just run down his contract? Just say, hey, I committed to the team. Like, the contract I signed is what I signed, but I want to go somewhere else. Like, at, you know, or do we see club players like Eden Hazard type, for instance, where, you know, in his final year saying, you know, I'd rather leave in this fashion. You know, you guys can recoup some money. You guys can get something back for me versus leaving for free for players who want to explore that dream destination. So I want to get your guys thoughts on that yeah I think personally for me I just think it's indicative of the sort of the landscape of the top clubs these days I you know who has who actually has a proper project who actually yeah. has the financial <laughs> uh, muscle to to um to to either sign and spend over 120 mil plus um as was the case maybe in 2017 2018 as you saw with uh, Dembele, Griezmann, Pogba and the rest um a lot of the teams are coming up to the end of their cycles at the same time. Um, I'm only thinking perhaps Manchester City, Manchester United even, who seem to be impervious to any financial difficulties, Paris Saint-Germain still, but even that's taking a step back for longer. They keep Neymar and Mbappe together. The, Barcelona the, are not in that the, position. Exactly. Barcelona in huge debt. Real Madrid at the end of the cycle themselves. A lot of 30 and over 
Uh, and Bayern Munich really just never spend team. that much money either. On, on like they don't exactly. they spend, but not like a hundred, hundred twenty million. They usually replenish with their system, and they buy in areas where they do need, like Asane, for instance. Exactly, and I think that's the only sort of five or six clubs that are really going to spend uh, decent money. Juventus, in particular, also again they've they've relied heavily on on free transfers more, more or less. Um, it's, it's, it's the landscape has changed and it's shifted, and the players, I think, at the very top end of the spectrum they're looking and they're not seeing places where you know they can spend five years um at anymore the only the, you know the only difference being if you're 21 uh, obviously like like Haaland for example so you're seeing in you know like you said with Alaba you, I think you've both seen those that infographic of all the players that are going to be out of contract in 2021 um, in the summer, there are a lot of really, really good names on there. Mm. And I think players are just looking around to see where can they get the most amount of money. Um, you know, the project is something that might come to pass, but it really depends on who's got the financial muscle uh, to spend uh, the salaries because obviously everyone wants to continue to get paid and get paid really, really well. Um, but in terms of sporting opportunity, um, a lot of teams aren't in so much, you know, looking into long-term vision, long-term health, um, it can be a rocky couple of years ahead. Like I said, only very few clubs, the two Manchester clubs, um, Paris still, I suppose, um, and, and Real Madrid to some extent. But again, you know, you've seen that they're going to be going through quite a big change, maybe not this year, but over the next two, three years, um, as, the, you know, the likes of Modric, et cetera, make way. Um, so I think that's why I think players are just happy to, take a step back, have a look at what's going in the market. And, you know, there's still nothing to commit until the very end. There's no obligation to. Um, so it makes sense on their part, of course, you know, they're still assets. They're still, um, you know, very keen to make the right decision and not waste, you know, the peaks of their career. Um, but, yeah. I think there is uh, the short-term nature kind of thing that you mentioned, I think, is, is very true. I mean, there are going to be clubs out there who look at a like the likes of Sergio Aguero and say, I think this guy could fill the gap for 18, 24 months. Um, I don't know what team that is, whether or not that they're in Europe, whether or not it's even like a PSG. Um, but I think there are going to be teams who, if you are like a PSG or a Man City and you look at this and you're like, well, or even a Chelsea, right? Uh, with kind of the spending that they had last summer. Um, and you're like, well, if we can spend now when no one else can spend and then not spend when everyone spends, then maybe we'll be in a good position. So I think you might see a bit of that coming to the fore. Um, but there is going to be still a lot of juggling. I think a lot of teams have too many contracts on their books. Uh, we saw what happened with Barcelona and Juventus with the Arthur Pjanic deal, Matt. There is going to be a lot of kind of balancing the books and, and squad rebuilds. So it's going to be really interesting to watch this transfer window and especially the summer transfer window because there are a lot of players that feel like that they're at the end of their journeys with their respective clubs, but not all of them will move. So it's going to be very interesting to see how those players pan out, especially uh, essentially. But um, we've talked about all that stuff quite a lot. Uh, Mo, before, before you leave us, we really wanted you to get us your give us your thoughts on um, uh, Simakin, who looks like he's going to be going to Milan, Matt's team, um, from Liga, very highly rated, played predominantly this season at centre-half, but played a lot of good football at right-back as well. Um, what are your thoughts on him? A good signing? Yeah, very, very good signing. I think he's um, a player that reads the ball, uh, reads the game very, very well. He's he's, he's really, really, really good at, at the back. He's um, powerful, you know, um, you know, very good, get very good aerially. Um, and He's, he's, he's one of the better defenders in league at the moment, and that's saying something considering how poor Strasbourg have been and the difference in quality between him and his counterpart, Stefan Mitrovic and Lamin Kone. Um, he's, he's really improved considering that perhaps 18, 24 months ago, he was practically nowhere in the, in the French footballing landscape, but Strasbourg took a chance on him. Uh, Thierry Laurie has really brought the best out of him, and he's proper versatile as well, playing... I think equally as good as whether you know the back or or at right back. Um, he's you know when he does play right back, he's perhaps not as a, you know vigorously going forward as he is. I think that's just when you have defenders who also sort of um, play on the flanks and not you know as attack focused as 
as they can be. I think that's an issue. Um, but he reads the game so well. He, you know, defensively positioning, he's is top. Um, he gets into um, dangerous areas and just reads the game pretty well. I think I watched him um, very closely when um, my team, I'll say, played Strasbourg um, about two months ago. I thought he was the best player on the pitch. He played right back in that game. Um, and, you know, it's, it's because of people like, you know, people like him and his his profile that they, they were able to really nullify um, Marseille going forward. Actually restricted us just to one shot that game. Um, but we ended up winning 1-0, which was <laughs> fantastic, I suppose. So not not for the one of trying, I suppose, on his behalf. But he, he is, he's outgrown Strasbourg for sure. And I think Strasbourg will do well to get a decent fee for around 15, 20 million for him, uh, particularly given the financial constraints that I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast. But um, yeah, high praise to him um, and he can continue to grow. And I think Milan's a fantastic place to do it, especially since they're focusing a lot on younger players as well these days. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, the more I've been reading about it, I know me and Pet had a conversation briefly in our WhatsApp chat last week because I think he mentioned it. And I saw, you know, where he was kind of being able to to be deployed, you know, right back central um, in, in, in the defense. And, you know, I see some kind of similarities, or at least I see with um, some of the, the players that Milan are bringing in is that versatility, right? You know, they have with Pierre Kalulu, who came over on a free transfer from Lyon, a player that not many people thought would be um, in a conversation. You know, there was reports that he was going to be loaned out, a promising young talent nonetheless, but now he was in a pinch, was playing games um, and starting games at, cent- at Central Defender, you know, just recently until they got Simon Kair back. So, you know, you know when you speak on Simakin here and the fact that his, he has a versatility behind him, um, and you know, when you throw in the culmination, the fact that he's young, he's, you know, the fee is relative, um, relatively cheap, given you know, the, the, the need for Milan and, and, and the market being the way it is for central defenders slash right backs. I think this is, uh, uh, could be a potentially another sound piece of business for, for Paolo Maldini. Um, but, you know, it, it's, it's going to be interesting to see, right? Because, you know, there is some competition there and, you know, Musacchio is going to be on his way out. Leo Duarte is a non-factor but you really start to see just how much Milan is really delving outside of Italy in some of these different areas that they typically weren't accustomed to going into for, for some of their purchase business. And France has become just a hotbed for plenty of talent. Yes. But also for the fact that you could see where Milan have shifted a lot of their efforts to bolster their squad. And, and, and France has become just a wonderful area for them. I mean, you're seeing what Liao, what he's been able to accomplish when he came over from Lille, and, you know, I'm excited. I'm hopefully Simakin is a, is a player that can come in immediately and help because I think there's um, some, some thinness in the back. But, um, yeah, is there anything else that Milan fans, I guess, should expect from Simakin as far as maybe his ceiling? What's his floor look like? From what you've seen, do you think he um, you know, would fit better in with maybe like, a, I guess, a, a ball-playing central defender or someone who's more predominantly um, secluded to his, you know, maintaining his area? Yeah, no, I think absolutely the latter. Um, in fact, one of the things is weaknesses is the fact that, you know, his passing completion and, and, and other other sort of uh, uh, movement of the ball statistics can be a little bit erratic at times. Um, but that's because I think the way that Strasbourg is set up, they invite a lot of pressure. So that, that can be a bit daunting uh, for the likes of Simic. And I think they improves uh, when you play out of the flank, but they can be, they you know, it can be quite challenging for him as they, really absorb a lot of pressure from certain teams. Um, and given the fact they're still 16th, and that's been quite evident, but he has great reading of the area. He has really good positioning. Um, I think with a bit of continued coaching, I think better coaching, and also in a team that isn't subject to so much sort of territorial um, pressure, um, he can focus on the other aspects of his game. I think it's no surprise that each time Strasbourg have won in league on this season, he's featured in all 90 minutes and they've kept clean sheets as well. Um, so it's possible. I think he's, he's like I said, he's outgrown Strasbourg. He's, he needs to go play in a team around better players and a better standard for him to improve and just cut out a couple of weaknesses in his play, namely, uh, you know, transmitting the confidence that he has um, as a defender in his area. Um, to translating that with bringing the ball out of play, uh, connecting um, with teammates going forward and improving if he does play on the right flank, 
improving his attacking output as well. Um, of course, football is a numbers game, and I think some people, um, you know, prioritize statistics, you know, like goals and assists and whatnot more than others, for example. Um, so some of that might get lost, but he is a player with huge potential. And I think he can definitely continue to improve. That was awesome. Thank you so much, Mo. I think that's probably all we've got time for today. A great profile on Simak in there, and I think he's going to be a great addition to Milan, and it kind of highlights their great feasts of buying young, good players from uh, the top five leagues, and in generally in Europe, and, and basically boosting their value by playing them in a in a good, well-coached side, and then looking at whether or not they stay for the long-term project or they're flipped for big money. So let's see where that one goes. But Mo, it's been a pleasure having you on once again for the fourth time. Where can people find out more about you? Um, yeah, no, I'm on Twitter. I think you will find my ads, I think, somewhere posted in the when this podcast goes up, um, <laughs> just muttering along. Yeah, so um, if you're also massive fans of Olympic Marseille or Liga in general, do 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 follow me. Brilliant. And uh, co-host Matt, as always, where can people find out more about you? Sure. On Twitter, at Matt underscore Santangelo. Just recently um, joined up with Martino Puccio, who, of course, is a co-host of the show as well, to be covering a lot of Milan-related stuff and content in general uh, with Milan Reports. So make sure you guys follow me on Twitter to get all updates on that. Awesome. And you can find me at Pet Berisha, P-E-T-B-E-R-I-S-H-A, talking about Arsenal, but only when they're doing relatively okay. And uh, you can find us at State of Play Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, all that great stuff. Thank you very much, everyone, for listening and have a great day. We'll catch you next week for more State of Play.